This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Check out their newly revamped on-ramp program, which gives writers month-long access to educational webinars, interactive pitch prep sessions, and online pitching opportunities. To learn more, visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about how to decide what TV sample you should be writing next, from business considerations to artistic and career reasons. We'll discuss several elements that we've used ourselves when choosing our next projects. But first, we're going to be doing our paper tease segment. Before we get into today's episode, we need to give feedback on two more paper tease entries, as well as declare our October winners. And in case you're not familiar with our Paper Tease competition, we regularly give feedback to a select few teasers from our listeners' TV pilots. They can be any format, whether half hour or one hour, in any genre, comedy, drama, etc. In addition to getting feedback on your teasers, if they're selected, you can go into the running to win prizes from our sponsors if you're chosen as one of the monthly winners, and you become eligible for our Paper Team mentorship when we announce the winner of that later. Excellent. And let's get started with our first Paper Tease entry or rather our third paper tree entry for the month of October, but our first today. And it is Children of Salem by Dylan Brand, and it's a drama. And in Children of Salem, we open on a hooded figure investigating a dilapidated cottage in the woods and finding a worn gravestone. A 16-year-old boy named Tommy shows up, searching for a girl named Jocelyn. A gang of teens show up and threaten him, chasing him through the woods. When they have him cornered, the hooded figure emerges and scares them off. The police show up as the gang flees, and the hooded figure goes to leave, but realizes she has dropped her ceremonial blade. We see Tommy pick up the blade and run away before the police find them. What did you think of Children of Salem? Yeah, this was an interesting one. Obviously, it's got a lot of those genre kind of feels to it. You know, it's it's a little bit scary and tense, and there seems to be the suggestion of some sort of magical thing going on in there. In terms of the writing, I thought the writing itself was good on the page, but the way that the action was presented to us, I found a little bit confusing and disorienting at times. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like, to that point, I'm personally a big fan of horror and tension-building set pieces. So I do appreciate that the writer was you know, trying to do those things in that teaser. But for me, those pieces didn't quite come together uh, into what you just said. The, the teaser, I thought, felt into that trap that something we've talked about over and over again on Paper Tease uh, previously, which is that idea of, you know, differentiating the mystery and the confusion. Because obfuscating characters' motivation or characters' relationships to one another and even the story itself uh, isn't automatically conducive to uh, getting more attention from the reader. It just confuses us. I agree. And even obfuscating who a character is a lot of the time, you know, not only the hooded figure, but also the like masked assailants and all, there's a lot of confusion about the identity of particular characters when it doesn't necessarily contribute to the story as much. Obviously you don't want to say who your hooded figure is, but if they're just a gang of teenage boys, you know, they don't have to be masked assailants or they don't have to, doesn't need to be mystery around that because it doesn't serve a real purpose in the story. 
Oh, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And also, I feel like initially, uh, there's a little bit of confusion in terms of the relationship between the hooded figure and Tommy, because in the way the prose is written, there's no clear delineation when we transition from the hooded figure that we follow to this cottage to Tommy, who suddenly appears in the story. And there's no clear distinction in the prose when we're switching and sort of the hooded figure disappears. Yeah, that threw me off as well. You know, I, often I was kind of confused about the sense of location in the story. You know, we've got this figure on the bluffs looking the headstone, and then Tommy comes out, and there's no sort of transition. There's no new header. There's no whatever. So he's ostensibly in the exact same location as this figure, yet we never see any mention of the figure. Now, on the second read, I did get the connection that the cat that Tommy is talking to is the cat that was with the hooded figure. But again, it wasn't clear where the hooded figure went. And then, you know, we're, we're transitioning from that to all these teens showing up as well. And I just didn't have a really good sense of where we were and what was happening. Yeah. And speaking of space, I think even the story itself and the way the prose is written indicates elements that you're supposed to understand physically in terms of the location, but it's not really set up. So for example, in the last page, it's mentioned that the gang is running for the parking lot. But when did that parking lot appear previously? It's those little things that just add up throughout the teaser that threw us off. Yeah, another one was clanging in hushed voices from around the corner. Now, is that the corner of the cottage? Is that somewhere in the forest? Like, I think that at the start of this scene, what the writer could have done is paint a broader picture of the environment around us, and that can help to build the world and the tone as well. And then once you've painted that picture, then you can point to those specific places, and then we're going to know where the characters are going and moving and how that action flows. Yeah, and I also felt that the way the characters behave or what they were doing felt a bit odd or off. Uh, We don't really understand what any of those factions are really doing here in the first place. Obviously, we don't quite understand what the hooded figure is doing. We can sort of guess what the masked assailants are doing, and maybe we can sort of you know, figure out what Tommy's doing, but it's all based on the reader's assumptions of what they're doing. And so that's another element of mystery that leads more to confusion than anything else, because you can have that question mark for maybe one, if not two of those factions. But if it's all three of those lead characters or lead groups of people in that four-page teaser, it's just confusing. Right. I mean, is it Halloween? Is that why they're masked? Are these bullies that Tommy's run into before or just random teenagers who are picking on him because that's what gangs of teenagers do? Like you said, I think you want to pick one place where you put the emphasis of your mystery and then have everything else be clear enough to the reader. Yeah, and even highlight, assuming this is you know a group of uh, witches or there's some sorcerer involved, then you got to lean in and add to that element on the page so we really clearly understand what they're doing and what Tommy has stumbled upon uh, when he walked there and what he was doing in the first place. In terms of some of the micro elements of the script, one that came up for me is I'd be careful about using metaphor in action sequences because it's very easy to misinterpret. The one that I'm thinking of in particular is where we say that the hooded figure is still as a statue. Now that could mean very still, or it could mean that this figure continues to be a literal statue. Like we already know that the rules of this world are heightened and there's potentially magic around. So I thought for a second, oh, has the figure turned into an actual statue? You know, we have these genre elements already. So either of those interpretations is equally plausible to me. So when it's not a major plot point or something interesting like that, just keep it simple and say the figure stands still or unmoving or just stands, you know? Yeah, I have the same comment specifically because 
in terms of the hooded figure, there's a lot of insinuations that happen about what exactly is behind the hood. Is it a literal alien? Is it a witch? Is it a monster? Is it a weird creature? We don't quite know. So if you clarify that in the pros and the way you're phrasing their actions, I think that can help move forward what they are and give a clear indication to the reader of who those people are and maybe if it is a creature or not. And going back to what you were saying about building tension, you know, the writer does use certain devices that are quite effective at that at times. You know, you've got these one-line sentences and these ellipses and things like that. But I did feel at times that it strayed into overdoing that and we would have a section where there would be three one-paragraph little just lines in a row where we're pulling on this tension string. But by doing it on every line, that kind of makes nothing feel tense. It's like the boy who cried wolf. That was actually something that a previous teaser did really effectively in my mind, Migra, uh, in the sense of the deeper you go into that world and into the story, the more tension building happens in that script. Uh, so I feel like there's a middle ground to be had there where you can still play up that tension building without sort of milking it every single step of the way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I, I do like the writing itself, and I can tell that the writer has talent. It's just that it's presented to us in such a way that it's hard to engage with it because we're confused about where we are or what's happening. So if, if it was just reanalyzed through that lens of making it clear to the reader and picking where you, your battles, where you want the mystery to be, and where you want things to be clear, I think that this would be, without even changing what happens, a, a much stronger piece. I think that solves the question of what would make us want to read on versus not. Yeah, exactly. And our next paper tease for this week is called Socio Club by Kobe Mann, and it's a comedy or dark comedy. Here's the summary. Uh, in a flashback set in a kindergarten classroom, we meet Khalil Kaluuya as his teacher reads the attendance roll. Khalil is the only black kindergartner in his class, and through voiceover from an adult version of Khalil, we learn that this flashback is the first time that another student named Madeline Schwartz ruined his life. We then see what happened as Madeline starts to ask these kind of racist questions pertaining to Khalil's name and origin and pesters him through the rest of the day. As Khalil feeds the class hamster, Madeline approaches him once more, but Khalil refuses to play along with her this time and says that she's weird and a racist. Moments later, it appears as though Madeline has killed the class hamster and tried to blame it on Khalil. So what were your thoughts on this one, Alex? I actually quite liked that pilot. Uh, both the dialogue and the situation and prose really put you in the shoes of the protagonist in a really interesting, unique, and funny way. So I really appreciated that. And even uh, the voiceover, I'm not really the biggest fan of voiceover, especially for exposition, but I felt like it actually worked here uh, because it added to the situation and the story and actually built on the humor uh, as opposed to just state what is actually happening. And in this case, it especially worked uh, because it's sort of the internal monologue of this adult talking about this very serious situation juxtaposed with this kid who just says kind of kid stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. I thought this was great use of voiceover. Uh, you know, it's giving us a sense of character and voice rather than just narrating what we're seeing on the page. We're understanding something about future Khalil and how this all relates to, to him and his personality. I thought the writing was strong. It was pretty succinct. Um, you know, it wasn't too wordy. It kind of got to the point and it was very funny in places. And, uh, and there was definitely that kind of dark comedic tone to it as well. Yeah, my one big comment, it's not really no, it's more of a question, is that it's a bit unclear if the entire show is going to be about the lead character's childhood and life in this classroom environment, kind of like what young Sheldon is, or if the show is going to flash to different times in his life. And as it stands, obviously, at the top of the pilot script, there is a delineation that this is a flashback, which does seem to indicate that it is going to take place across multiple timelines. And if that is the case, then my one big comment would be that I would want to maybe have a glimpse or an idea of 
the context of when this is happening. Is this present day? Is this the future? Obviously, there's an adult involved because of the voiceover, but where is this being framed as? Yeah, I had the exact same note. I wanted to see where we were going to cut to the end of this teaser, or I guess when we come into the, the first act, you know, where are we grounding the majority of this story? Because it could just as easily be set in kindergarten with him narrating it over the top or going through different stages in his life as it could be, you know, in the present day. And this is just a single flashback and maybe the flashbacks don't ever happen again. Like, I think that we need a better sense of what the actual day-to-day of this show is by the end of the teaser. And I know that that's putting a lot of stress on three, four pages, but I think that, you know, we just want to understand what is this show? What is the engine and where is it really set? And what's our status quo today? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if let's say 70% of the show is going to take place in 2018, then even a single scene at the end of the teaser in 2018 would help tremendously set that context up and set up what the engine of the show is going to be about, as opposed to currently where, for all we know, the entire show is about this classroom. I could have easily seen this teaser play out as flashbacks to three different times in this guy's life where his life was ruined by Madeline. You had one from kindergarten, one from elementary school, one from high school and college, and then we cut back to today and she's currently ruining his life or something like that. You know, that gives us the scope of this and then also grounds us in what the show will actually be moving forward. Absolutely. Kind of like a cross timeline version of uh, the Glee teaser or even election of uh, the movie. I think that's very effective. Do you have any micro notes or stuff on the page? Just a small thing about character description. I would argue this is probably the the teaser where I would ask this the least uh, because I feel like the minimal character description works. Uh, However, I think uh, you can still help us give context to the kid as opposed to the adult Khalil if you add his age when you're introducing him or little elements like that to really clarify this is going to be the Khalil of yesteryears as opposed to the Khalil that's going to be in present day, assuming this is a flashback. And what makes us want to read on versus not in a socio club? Yeah, I think I, I definitely want to read on with this one. I think that the the writing is strong and punchy enough, and it leads us to a point where we're wondering, oh, how does this girl ruin his life in the future and, and, and that kind of thing? But again, just going back to the note that we gave earlier, if I had seen a fuller idea of what the show itself was going to look like through the teaser rather than what one flashback looks like, then I think it would have given me more tools to read on knowing exactly what kind of show this is and that would have helped a little bit it's interesting because i feel like both version of that show are interesting to me one hand you do have that young sheldon-esque full show spent in the flashback and that is very compelling i think that is to the strength of this teaser on the other hand if it is indeed part of an ensemble and a a bigger timeline uh, i would want some tease of what is uh, the context of this situation so i think if you saw that issue, then that's tremendous positive. And there's also this suggestion through the title Socio Club and through Madeline's actions that she is some sort of sociopath or psychopath. And the the story and the the show itself has something to do with this notion of someone who even from a child was doing these psychopathic things and killing animals and ruining people's lives. And so I guess I would want to see how that works into the, the total concept as well. Is Khalil just this person who's always on the receiving end of this one crazy person who he can't get out of his life? Or does he meet other sociopaths as well? Like, why is Socio Club the best choice of title for this show? Mm, so this is kind of like a young American psycho. Potentially. Yeah. Mm, Khalil the new Patrick Bateman. 
And on that note, let's crown the two winners of October. And as always, all entries we read on air are in contention for future PPT mentorship. But the top two teasers of October are going to each be awarded a free month of Roadmap Writers Premium Writers Network, a $69 value. Nice. So this month-long program will grant the writer one open pitch session, which they can choose from dozens of execs to pitch their project to, a live online elevator pitch to three execs in an online roundtable setting, four educational webinars, one private logline review with Roadmap's Director of Writer Outreach, one group pitch prep webinar with literary manager Chris Deckard of Fictional Entity, and one interactive webinar with Roadmap's Creative Director on a behind-the-scenes look at the industry. So that's a lot of value to get just for sending in your teaser for free. Absolutely. And the first winner of October is Alma by Monica Hanush. Congratulations. Congratulations. Who is our second winner? The second winner is Socio Club by Kobe Mann. So Ooh. well done there. Maybe we're threatened by a sociopath. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> All right. You can check your inbox for the invitation from Roadmap. And as for the rest of you, as always, you can send your own teaser of any genre, any format, obviously TV pilots only at paperteam.co slash teaser. And now let's get on with the show. Let's get into how to decide what TV sample you should write next. First, we're going to take a look at the writer slash career reasons. And these are ways of approaching your next sample from a writer's perspective. Things to keep in mind in the same way we spoke about the importance of declaring your TV major all the way back in our second episode that was PT2. Do you remember when we had single digits? Oh, yes. That was the day. (laughs) And to that idea, we need to start off with perhaps the key differentiator between you and everyone else, and that is your branding. Right. And like Alex said, we've talked a lot about branding before, so we're not going to go over those basics again, but you should know your brand already. That said, you don't have to let it limit you. You might be an hour-long procedural drama writer, but that doesn't mean that every sample you turn out should be just a different flavor of metropolitan cop crime show. You can find fun ways to do something new within that niche. You know, perhaps the case of the week is actually an insurance adjuster who constantly runs into unique and odd cases, or a retired cop solving mysteries around his retirement village. You know, shows like Monk, Burn Notice, Psych were all fun ways to reinvent that procedural genre, and nothing's stopping you from doing the same thing with your writing while still staying within your brand. And in your next sample, you can always show off different skills or even train different muscles. You can still display more of who you are as a writer while displaying a wider variety of samples or stories. As long as you can genuinely connect your material to who you are as a person and a writer, then anything is possible. You want to keep it consistent with your brand and similar enough that decision makers can see that you know how to execute material in that wheelhouse over and over again, but in a different enough way that you're giving yourself options. For example, you might have a sci-fi comedy pilot and a family comedy pilot. Now, these are both comedies. They're both single cams, but having both of them means that you could get work on more genre-based comedies too, like a, a Rick and Morty or a People from Earth. That, for example, a modern family-type script might not work for for staffing. Yeah, it's a bit like answering initially sort of that question of, oh, why did you write that? Except in the stage where you're deciding what you want to write. And to that, the next element to think of is taking stock of what is already in your arsenal. What samples do you already have in your portfolio, like specs, pilots, features, etc.? Maybe you have a great sample for staffing, but you're missing that next project to go out for development. Whatever that case may be, there's always a gap that could be filled by that specific script which would make you a better candidate for that next job. 
Yeah, I mean, if you've been going out and taking meetings, think about the kind of feedback that you've had from those execs and those producers and showrunners before on the samples that have gone out. Kelly and I once missed out on staffing on an animated show because we had an adult animation sample and they were staffing a kid's show. You know, we still got the meeting. They liked us and they liked our writing. But when it came down to us and one other writer who had a kid's sample, they could clearly see that that person could do the exact job they were asking for. So it was less of a risk for them to take. And that ended up being the tiebreaker and we didn't get the job. So we went away and we wrote an 11 minute kids animation sample. And since then, that sample has gotten us a ton of meetings and interviews that we never would have had if we'd only still kept that one adult animation sample up our sleeves. Yeah, absolutely. And figuring out sort of what script you should be spending your time on to fill that gap is another question you should ask yourself. And that's especially important when it comes to deciding between should I rewrite a project that I already have versus starting something new? And you can ask yourselves questions like, are my reps trying to get this older sample out for staffing? Or are they trying to get this new one out to potential buyers? How long is it going to take me to get each project done? I always lean towards generating new material if this is a project for buyer because rewriting will always happen and it's better to be paid for it than do it for free. That said, you still want that sample to be in tip-top shape before going out with it. So it's kind of that trade-off. Right. You shouldn't be turning out a new sample last minute for staffing that you haven't had a chance to do any rewrites on because you're not giving yourself the best chance uh, at staffing. So that's always something to keep in mind as well is planning ahead and knowing how much time you really need to get those samples ready, whether it's for trying to sell or trying to staff. Now, when you're thinking about what you want to write next, it's important not to kind of sell out and just write what you think people want to see unless that's actually what you want to write and what you want to do. Don't feel inclined to write a network multicam script if you know that you only ever want to write for single cam comedies. You know, writing a pilot takes a lot of time and effort and you could better spend that on something you're passionate about. And I think that that will really show in the script and the work as well. And that advice actually goes for pretty much anything that we're saying in this episode. Not every single advice that we're giving here will fit every single one of your samples. There isn't just that one evergreen answer on how to select your next project. It's this assortment of factors that should help you figure out what your next sample is. You should be having fun writing this piece, otherwise none of it matters. And as always, your mileage will vary. Now, one important thing to consider when it comes to looking at your career on the whole and where you wanna be going is the idea of changing directions. Do you want to maybe pivot from comedy to drama? Then maybe you should be looking at writing a dramedy, that kind of thing. Are you wanting to play around with the formats that you're doing? It can be especially tricky to work yourself out of that specific niche or brand. Uh, Maybe you've been working on cop procedurals for the past decade and you're that go-to cop guy or gal in your room, but you've always secretly wanted to work on a My Little Pony show for some reason. (laughs) Or conversely, you're a multicam writer dreaming of writing for Better Call Saul. The more pigeonholed you are, the flashier your material will need to be to make yourself stand out from your existing brand. Yeah, you can't just suddenly say, oh, I want to be a sci-fi writer, but not have a sci-fi script to back that up. It really is all on the page. And that's what's going to share people, I can do this and I can change my career to this direction. Absolutely. And when it comes to sort of that format change overall, I feel like it's much easier to transition now than it used to be, specifically because the boundaries between what is a drama and what is a comedy have sort of disappeared. I've been a proponent for a long time that the key differentiator is on the format scale, you know, half hour versus one hour, not just comedy or trauma, but even that idea is sort of evolving. Barry is a half hour comedy with 
big-time drama writers like Les Sarnoff. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is a one-hour show and yet was in contention for TV comedies at the Emmys. Lethal Weapon staffed its rooms with both half-hour comedy writers and one-hour drama people, so it's evolving. So practically speaking, you got to write that sample that can fit that middle gap and will allow you to be staffed on series closer to your goal. Show some flexible range in your material that allows you to get that first step towards that career change. It doesn't mean you'll be working overnight on something completely different from the skills you've shown in the past, but it's that move towards that new direction. Yeah, I think that those kind of rooms where they're mixing together comedy and drama writers are becoming more common than ever. And that's probably a good place to be if you are a writer who's wanting to change directions. You know, you're coming from the comedy world and moving into drama. You find yourself on a one of those kind of shows. And then that's just a really nice inflection point into heading towards that arena. And you can always play up those skills you already built in your past. So for example, if you've written a lot of crime mysteries, there's a way of transitioning into a show that may not just be this very dark, gritty show. I mean, look at the new season of Veronica Mars, which staffed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in their writer's room because he co-wrote this Sherlock Holmes novel. And who would have thought like a decade ago that Kareem would have been staffed on Veronica Mars, which is sort of like this teen uh, detective show. And yet he's on the staff right now. There you go. That's how much you can transition your career. You can go from basketball into writing for Veronica Mars. So never say never. <laughs> if Kareem can do it, you can do it too. So we've taken a look at ways of figuring out your next sample based on the writing side of things. But now let's tackle some business reasons to weigh when deciding on your next TV sample. And these may be more practical and money-driven metrics to some people, but they're actually just as important as anything else we're talking about in this very episode. And the first one is talking to and importantly, listening to your reps. Now, whether that's your manager or your agents, you should always be in a conversation with them and running you know, your log lines and your pitches by them in those early stages. And they can tell you what they think would be a good sample for your arsenal and also potentially what the industry is looking for or not looking for, you know, that they're reading too much of. That's something that they have access to information about that you probably don't. And you can even go and ask your friends the same thing. Honestly, which of these ideas sounds the most interesting to you? Absolutely. Don't be afraid to use your reps. Like Nick just said, they should be keeping their ears on the ground to see not just what is selling, but what people are looking for proactively. And reps are your reps for a reason. This is something we're already spoke about in our TV Rep 201 episode about ways of best using that relationship to further your career. And the same holds true for deciding what samples to write next. They should know what you're going after in terms of your career and the business side so they can give you the right advice on where to go next. Right. You're handing basically ammunition to your reps to go out there and fire off those shots into the dark and, and hope to land you on something. So you want to make sure you're giving them the right ammunition to hit the right target. Uh, speaking of samples and going out, let's talk about staffing. Right. So this is something that you can be keeping in mind when you're writing your next samples is actually looking at what shows are out there. What are the shows that are going on to their next season and might be hiring for the writer's room? What are the pilots that are getting picked up? You can actively be taking into consideration what potential jobs there are for you to get staffed on and thinking about what's the best sample for them to read for you to get on those shows that you want to work on. What sample is going to open the most doors for you? Yeah, this is actually similar to what we just said about changing directions, but much more targeted to staff itself. If you're trying to get hired on a teen soap, then writing out a gritty crime drama may not be the best use of your time unless that crime drama element fits within the teen soap. For example, Riverdale is a very 
poppy heightened show but it still has a built-in mystery every season so maybe one year they're going to be looking for that mystery driven staff writer so that's where you can come in uh, you can also write something that crosses genres something like how to get away with murder on paper could serve both as that soapy drama sample as well as a legal drama sample so you can check in multiple boxes at the same time Right. And these staffing considerations might also dictate what kind of sample you should be working on, depending on what time of year it is. If broadcast staffing season is coming up, you're going to be wanting to get your broadcast network kind of sample ready for those shows, because that is still that monolithic time of the year where all of those networks are going to be reading and hiring for the pilots. And then maybe you can work on your more cable Netflix driven script later in the year for development season or something. Yeah. And to that, I think that brings us to the next element you've got to consider, which is writing a spec sample as opposed to something you want to develop. Exactly. So you want to be keeping in mind when you're writing and when you're choosing what you're going to write next, is this something that could sell or actually be practically producible as a TV show versus perhaps a writing sample you know that can only ever live as a sample? Now, one or the other is not inherently right or wrong, but you do need to think about what is best for you and how you spend your time. Your sample is going to get put in front of a lot of executives and producers when you're going out and taking general meetings and staffing. And so having multiple conversations open to you and your material is always useful. For example, well, the showrunner didn't think you were right for this show this time, but the studio exec really loved your sample and they want to have a talk to you about maybe developing it for them. Or, you know, you're taking a general and that producer has some IP that's right up your alley in your genre and they just read your sample and it showed that you would be a great person to take a stab at that for them. Yeah, it can be especially freeing creatively to work on a piece without worrying about its budget or other business considerations. All you want is to make the most entertaining and unique piece of content in your arsenal that is going to stand out from the rest, uh, which is very easy to do, I know. But if you already have that unique piece, then maybe you should think about development and work on a sample that can be shopped around. Once again, uh, your peers and your reps should be great indicators of what will work on that level. And when it comes to thinking about these producible shows, you always want to be asking yourself that question, does it have legs? You know, you might be passionate about an idea or a concept, but make sure there's more to it than just that logline. Does it have 100 episodes worth of material? in there? Are ideas bursting out of you when you think about it? Or are you struggling to see anything past that pilot? And in terms of those practical considerations, on top of figuring out if the show has legs, you got to also look at the macro scale of things and look at the trends. Now, obviously, you should not be looking at trends when deciding the next sample you want to write. But there's a definite consideration that comes in play regarding what is sellable practically on a budget. Like we just said, writing a high fantasy pilot, probably not sellable if you're an unknown. Writing a networky pilot or based on an IP, this is probably more doable. You've got to find that right key for the right lock. As evergreen as you think your pilot can be, it's very doubtful you'll always be using that one script to get staff on every single show for the rest of your career, especially if you also intend on developing other projects. So you've got to find sort of that perfect sample for that perfect niche and then move on to the next one. Along those lines, you should also be doing some research when you're in this stage of throwing around ideas and figuring out what you're going to do next. So you really want to make sure that there's nothing out there currently on the air or has been announced in the trades as, you know, in development or about to happen that is too close to your idea. There's nothing more disheartening than slaving over a pilot for months only to have a friend read it and go, oh, wait, have you seen XYZ? It's literally the same thing. It's on AMC. And you're like, oh, my God. Classic XYZ. <laughs> I know. 
Like, yes, everything has been done before and there'll always be vaguely similar shows, but you're going to have to hear that same comparison from everyone who reads it from execs to showrunners to your agent. So you need to make sure that your idea is actually unique enough to stand out, to make it worth you spending all that time on it. And usually that's probably by drawing on something personal to you and your experiences. Yeah, honestly, you haven't really worked in this business long enough until at least one of your projects ends up being made by someone completely different. Uh, Not because they stole that idea, but because that sort of thing just happens all the time. It just means you were that precursor of that trend or that you saw something before almost everyone did. And that's a testament to your ability to see what can work as a show. It's not really a disservice to you as a writer. And I know it's frustrating, but the only thing you can do is dust yourself off and start another project. Alternatively, you can tweak that existing project to see if it could be used as a sample to be staffed on this other show, assuming it's not literally the same execution. You can turn that loss into a win. You know, if you wrote that sample about these people crashing on a deserted island, maybe you can turn that into a sample to be staffed on Lost, assuming it's, you know, 2004. But I'm just saying you can tweak things and make it more fitting to that show. Right. And also don't be that person who's like, Oh, that show? Yeah, I wrote that first. Like, it's such a petty little thing to be like, oh, I had that idea. I could have done that better than J.J. Abrams. And sure, exactly. Like you said, it happens to everyone. So don't don't be, be petty about it. Just move on. Take that as a sign that you're doing stuff in the right direction. Stuff that could sell and could be a show. We've looked at the kind of writing career related reasons for choosing a spec. And we've also looked at the business side of things, but let's now take a look at some of the more artistic reasons why you might choose to do one spec over the other. Yeah. And there are definite questions you can ask yourselves to fill that need. A couple of those are, what do I want to say? Or what do I want to explore? When I wrote my Star Trek pilot, this was obviously before Star Trek Discovery existed and CBS All Access was even a thing, but there was no Star Trek on TV at that point. So I decided, you know, the hell with it. I needed to tell that story and dream of what a modern Star Trek series would look like. Did it have really a pure business, a career use? Maybe not right now, but you always improve your writing by writing. So it helped me in that way. Have you sent that to for staffing on Star Trek? No, not yet. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe one day. But I feel like that's like a faux pas, is sending a, kind of a sample for that show to that show in a way. I guess. It's not quite the same show. It's the same it's not world. Yet. True. So another thing to think about artistically when you're choosing your spec is what is the zeitgeist at the time? You know, what is topical thematically to today's world? What does the world kind of need to hear? Think about shows like Black Mirror or Sweet Vicious. They're so interesting and good because of what's going on in the world around us. And then people have come in at the right time and written a story that encapsulates that. Now, at the same time, instead of perhaps leaning into the horrors of today's society <laughs> and apocalyptic visions of our future, a la The Handmaid's Tale and Man in the High Castle. Great you, documentaries. Yeah, you can do the alternative and you can offer escapism and lightheartedness. You know, the most profitable era for movies was in the middle of the Great Depression. Despite having no money, people needed entertainment to take their minds off of reality. So that's also an option when you're thinking about zeitgeist. Yeah, and to that point, I mean, thinking of what you would want and enjoy seeing on TV is always a good litmus test to deciding if this is a good idea to pursue. That's why, for example, The Good Place is such a positive beacon in this landscape. When it comes to popular shows, the pendulum always goes from one end to another. How many times over the past 50 years have the words comedies are dead? 
and dramas are dead been said over and over and over again every decade or so. People want escapism at the end of the day. So what is your version of that? Another thing that you should always be thinking about is what kind of story can I tell that is so unique to me that no one else could have possibly told it? Just by the virtue of being who you are with your point of view and your life experiences, what is something you can offer to the world that has never been seen before just because it's so inexorably yours? Think of something like the movie 127 Hours or the TV show The Goldbergs. No one else in the world has had that exact experience, so you're offering something new and exciting and told in a fresh voice and point of view. There's a reason that there's such a race and a bidding war for IP because they're usually one of two things I've found. A, they're either incredible true stories, characters, events, things that have happened to people, or B, they're these unique and intricately detailed worlds from brilliant visionaries like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or Roddenberry's Star Trek, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. All of these things are selling like hotcakes right now. Yeah, and you got to remember that the most powerful samples are both extremely personal as well as extremely universal at the same time. Uh, that may sound counterintuitive, but even though something like the Goldbergs may be unique to Adam Goldberg's family life, it does have that universal appeal because so many people have been through similar familial situations and can also connect through that time period of the show. Six Feet Under is one of the best examples of that. It had this extremely close look at a family's life, but it could also give so much catharsis to its viewers because of stories and characters about life and death, which are two fundamentals that connect us all. So looking across all of these career-related, business-related, and artistic reasons for making that decision on what to write next, you know, there are infinite number of things that can factor into it. And these are things that have worked for us. They may or may not work for you. So take it all with a grain of salt and figure out really what works best for your individual situation and where you want to be going uh, with your career as a writer. You know, as Alex said, your mileage will vary. All right, so what are some takeaways for this episode? Number one, when considering what sample to write next, you should weigh up what is best for your career, what is best for the current industry landscape, and what is best for you as an artist. Number two, try to write something that's both unique and relatable, and that opens the most doors for you as a writer without betraying what you're actually passionate about and want to work in. Number three, work your way towards your goals one step at a time. No one TV sample will work to open every door throughout your entire career, so pick the one right for you today. Before we go, our Paper Tease competition is still open for submissions. If you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air, win prizes, and be eligible for our Paper Team mentorship. So thanks for taking the time to tune in and listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 110. If you want to leave us a review, I will personally give you a hug. Uh, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all of those will help us attract new listeners and build our papery, teamy community. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Roadmap Writers, who in just two years has helped more than 50 writers find representation. Visit roadmapwriters.com to see their full slate of educational programs. Paper Team listeners can use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or questions for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co and what are we doing next week? We are going to be talking to the amazing Latoya Morgan, who is currently a co-EP on Into the Badlands for AMC, and is just an all-around badass. So uh, we'll be chatting to her next week. Whoa, that was not bleeped at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll see you next week. We'll catch you then.